0: It is a joy and privilege to uh, bring the Word of God to you again, Um, even though um, uh, Chad was supposed to be here this morning, um, he wasn't able to speak. Um, I have this, this is a, I I sort of prepare themes in advance, I sort of think about what I'd like to be speaking about, and I have a few themes, and this was the one that was most um, prepared, I suppose, in my mind. So we will be talking about um, this pursuit today, but I do want to take the uh, opportunity also to, and not all of you know that today is a special day for Chad. Today is the day he becomes officially Australian, because he chucked a sickie. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> Thank you, brother. But I, I, I do want to recognize this brother amongst us, because they've, they've come across the seas and the oceans, and to be with us to minister amongst us, and I just want to thank the Lord for, for Chad and Beth and their kids and their family, and um, yeah, t- just traveling um, across from the, from the U.S. to be amongst us and to minister to us and with us, and so we, are, we praise God for His faithfulness in the provision for, for you guys uh, to us. So um, we're continuing our series on what Christians pursue, and uh, the pursuit we'll be looking at this morning is the pursuit of service. Uh, as was read to us from uh, Joshua 24, uh, 1 to 15. Uh, our, our focus will be on verses 14 and 15, but uh, we need to read from verse 1 to 13 just for context, uh, just to get a sense of, of what Joshua is saying. How do we understand service uh, amongst ourselves? Uh, how do we practice this? So we're going to look at um, our study in four parts. Uh, before I could, Before I start, I do want to put the disclaimer out there that Just because I'm speaking about service doesn't mean I've got it sorted in my life. Uh, I'm not standing here as someone who's got it all sorted and expecting you to live up to it, but just aware, painfully aware of my own shortcoming in terms of my service to the Lord, but encouraged by what I've prepared, encouraged by what I've learned, and hopefully it will be an encouragement to you as well. Uh, Like I said, our study will be in four parts, and uh, we'll begin uh, with a bit of context, and we'll call this uh, the setting um, of service uh, this is the end of the book of Joshua um, this, um, and um, he's perhaps one of Israel's most underestimated military leaders, I mean we've got leaders, uh, you know, we've got the judges we've got Moses, Elijah, the prophets big names um, but, um, but um, James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary on Joshua has this to say about the man and I quote Joshua was a soldier, he was a brilliant soldier, one of the most extraordinary military commanders of all time, but he was not an exciting person as far as we can tell. He was probably just a bit of a plugger, rather straightforward man who was chiefly concerned with carrying out his divine mission, commission to the letter. He had no great sins and made very few mistakes. In short, He was not the kind of person who would make a very good hero for a novel. I continue with the quote Yet Joshua was eminently God's man. God told him at the very beginning of the conquest Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you, do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful where you go. And this is exactly what Joshua did, and he was successful. Joshua directed the Jewish conquest of Canaan for seven long years, subduing all the great fortresses and cities of the land. He led the people in a a renewal of their covenant with God. And at the very end, when he was at least 90 years old, so we get an idea that when when Joshua is speaking this, he's about 90 years old, he challenged a new generation to be faithful, unquote. At at, At the age of about 90, Joshua summons... Uh, the people of Israel, in chapter 23, he summons just the, the leaders and the elders. And here in chapter 24, he summons the whole, all the people, as it were, the, the entire nation, to address them. And like Boyce says, he challenges a new generation to be faithful. Just to give you some context, it's about 50 years since the, since the Exodus. It's uh, when, when Josh was saying this. So they've, been, they've, been, they've left Egypt, they've wandered in the wilderness for about 40 years. And about 10 years, this campaign has been going on, conquering the promised land, getting in, you know, the Moabites and the Hittites and the Canaanites and the Jebusites and all the ites. And, uh, and now they've settled in the land and Joshua is, is, is challenging the people to be faithful. And how does he do it? Not by telling them what a great leader he was not by telling them of the strategies he used to defeat the Canaanites and the Moabites and all the warring kings, not by talking about his brilliant strategy or what future trends they should be aware of. He challenges the nation to be faithful by reminding them of who God is and what he has done. From verse 1 to 13, it's a litany of things that God has done. I plagued Egypt, but what I did in its, by what I did' in its midst. And afterward, I brought you out. I brought your fathers out of Egypt. then I brought you into the land of the Amorites who lived beyond the Jordan, and they fought you, and I gave them into your hand. God is speaking through Joshua to remind the people that they are where they are and are who they are. Not because of anything in them, but because of what God has done for them. And so the setting of service is against sovereign grace. I I particularly like the, the, the verse in verse 13 which says, I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities which you had not built, and you are eating of vineyards and olive groves, which you did not plant. It's unmistakable. There's, no, there's, there's, there's people alive at this time who, who, who know the truth of this command, of, of this statement. They were there when they left Egypt. They were there when the, the plagues happened. They were witnesses. They walked through that Red Sea. They saw the sea part and, and, and walked through through on dry land. They saw the pillar of cloud and the pillar of, of, of flame and they saw the provision of God. They saw Jericho's walls crumble before them. They knew that what Joshua was saying was true. And just, if, just to make the, uh, uh, in case they forget really who they are and, and, and that this is all of grace, he takes them back to their roots, to the not just Abraham but the father of Abraham and reminds them he was a pagan. This guy was an idol worshipper. Israel, your roots are not because you were blessed and you've always known God and that you always had a heart for God. No, no, your roots are in in idolatry. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel from ancient times, Your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, who's the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. They were not believers in Yahweh. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. I did all this. Abraham had Isaac. How old was he? We all know the story. Even when he was as good as dead, Romans tells us. Sarah was as good as dead. No hope for, for a child. The child of promise. How is the child going to be born? I don't know. I'm going to laugh. Huh. Guess what? And the Lord gives him Isaac. And Joshua wants to remind the people where they have come from and what God has done for them and who he is and all that he has given them and all that they have is nothing but the result of sovereign grace. Joshua's exhortation to serve God is set against the backdrop of grace. Why I'm saying that, why, why, do, I, why do I want to... Um, belabor the point is why do you serve God are you doing it to earn his favor or are you doing it in response to the favor he has already shown in Christ while we were yet sinners Christ died for us and though we who were hostile in mind Christ has reconciled us through his death on the cross to the Father. The just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous. What is our service? When we come and we, we set up and we take down and we put everything together and we and, and we live from day to day in our workplaces and our homes amongst our families, do we do it with an attitude of service? Are we mindful every day of what the Lord has done for us? Count your blessings, name them one by one. Do we do that every day? Or do we do it just when Jordan or whoever the leader is comes up and puts a mic in our hand and says, hey, maybe it's time you want to thank the Lord. Are we mindful of the grace that God has shown us in so many different ways throughout the course of our lives? It's, it's interesting, I, I try to do the math uh, between the time of Abraham's birth and the time that, that um, Joshua is actually saying this to Israel. And it's about 750 years. And Joshua is not just saying, hey, I want to recount God's faithfulness to our, us as a nation over the past 50 years. Let's talk about the last 750 years. Let's base our service not on feeling... Not an emotion, but fact. Abraham's father, Abraham, was an idol worshipper. Fact. God took him out of Canaan and gave him a promise to a, that he would bless him. Fact. God gave him Isaac when he was way past, and he and his wife were way past childbearing. Fact. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. Why should we do this? uh, Joshua because of the fact of who God is and what he has done why should we serve the Lord here in New Community Church because of who God is and what he has done what is the kind of service that Joshua is calling the people to we'll see that in our second point which is the system of service and, and, and I call it uh, I use the word "system" partly because to help with my alliterated outline, but also I think the word "system gives us the meaning of a framework, a pattern, an order, a foundation, something that puts things into order, that, that we can figure this out uh, and, and it gives us uh, some structure to service, and I believe that this can be expressed in the three words which we find in verse 14 which are fear, sincerity, and truth. The order for service, the basis for service, the foundation for service is based on fear, sincerity, and truth. Some of you may have faithfulness instead of sincerity in your, uh, in your translation. I think that's what Phil read out for us. But again, it's the same, it's the same idea. This is... This is the the framework within within which God expects us to serve Him. Now therefore, fear the Lord. Be in reverential awe of God. I think David mentioned this morning in thanks, hallowed be your name. That's the idea. When we, when we pray, when we, when we are worshipful, when we are serving God, we hallow His name. We reverence His name. We come before Him in our hearts and mind with an idea, with a fearful idea of who He is. We understand His power, His might, His majesty, His glory his wonder, we recognize and affirm that he is who he says he is and he is worthy of worship and honor and praise. We are aware of how puny we are. We are aware of how transcendently awesome he is. And that motivates us, that creates something in us which says, Lord, I, I just want to praise you. I want to recognize your worth. There's a sense of respect. We're given a sense of what this looks like in Habakkuk 3:2, which says, Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. I have heard the report about you, and I fear. You know, we live, we live in a time when, when, um, when the fearful awesomeness of God has been replaced by a sort of benign friendliness. Evangelicals in a bid to try and make God more acceptable and palatable by culture around have sort of dumbed down the awesomeness of God. We've robbed God of His unapproachable majesty and grandeur in the hope that people will come to Him. And I, and I think the problem is compounded in Australia where we just cannot bear to see or hear of someone better than us or bigger than us or greater than us. I think we, we seem to be culturally programmed to tell God to get over himself. We just can't, can't understand how someone can be worthy of so much adulation and adoration and admiration. It's not possible. Get over yourself. Yeah, we know you you made everything and all right, but yeah. Unless, unless anyone misunderstand me, You know, let me assure you that I think it's great that Australians don't fawn over politicians and and celebrities and media personalities like like people do in India, for example. I think it's great that there's a sense of groundedness in Australians that, that, that has a sense of equality. We don't make gods out of men. But the problem is that I think we take that attitude and we don't let God be God. I fear the groundedness makes it very difficult for us to appreciate the holiness and the majesty and the awesomeness of God because of which we need to fear Him. Therefore, Since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service. You have the same idea of service. And how should we offer it? With reverence and awe. Why should we do that? Because our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12. We know enough about bushfires not to approach it with an air of casualness. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. And there's that idea again that, that, uh, that the idea of service is motivated by gratitude and gratitude is motivated by what God has done. And therefore, because of what God does, we come to Him and render to Him service. In reverence and awe. There's also another idea, uh, and and, and, um, I'm happy to be corrected, as to why we don't fear as we ought. And I think it's because we think science has taken away the mystery of God. And it has. We, we, we don't uh, fear thunder and lightning or think that it's Zeus throwing down bolts of fire or something because we know that it's a natural phenomenon. We, we don't fear uh, earthquakes because we know we can predict them. We don't fear tsunamis because we know we can predict them and we can uh, get to safety before they come. But I think the, the atheists are right when they say that we serve a God of the gaps. That, if, that if, if we only worship that which we fear, and so if you take away the fear, then there's no need to worship, right? And that's true of our false religion, because it's based on a false understanding of God. False religion is based on the God of the gaps. But true religion is not based on the God of the gaps, it's based on what God has told us. It's not based on ignorance, it's based on knowledge. We fear because God has told us who he is. Joshua is telling the people of Israel, don't fear because you, you, know, you don't understand natural phenomena. Fear God because of who he is and what he has done and what you have seen him do. Do we fear God as we ought? Because if we don't fear him as we ought, we can't serve him as we should. If we want to serve, and I know we all do, we must fear God. We must give him the reverence and awe that is due unto his name. Reverential fear is a prerequisite for service. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity, serve him properly. Completely, there's a, there's a sense of, of being full of rendering service that is, that is complete, that, that there's nothing left to do. Uh, you, are, you are rendering service such that it is not shoddy, that has to be done again and again. Uh, you do it with, with a sense of, "Hey, I'm doing this for the Lord, I fear Him," and you can understand how the fear of the Lord would want us to, would motivate us to provide service that is sincere, genuine. Authentic, complete, pure. Uh, the same word is used uh, in in, uh, in uh, to to refer to sacrifices without defect. Bring the Lord service that is without defect. Bring the Lord's service that is from the bottom of your heart and true and genuine because He knows your heart. He can look into your heart. He can see your motivations for why you're doing what you're doing. The sacrifice of service that we want to offer has to be sincere. There's a qualitative aspect to it. We want to offer what is good now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth. Meaning, something that is confirmed as true, something that is objectively true, something that is objectively real, something that is free from illusion. Again, this idea is don't serve God because He is just some mystic- mystical, mysterious one that you can't figure out. Serve God because you know who He is. Serve God based on the truth that He is revealed in His word about who He is. Why, why, this, um, why truth? Well, because you can be sincere and you can be sincerely wrong. Sincerity alone is not a criteria for service. Our sincerity must be accompanied by truth. And how do we assess whether our reverential fear and our sincerity is accurate and correct and reasonable? Well, according to the Word of God. Psalm 119 verse 160, the sum of your word is truth. And the NIV puts it, all your words are true. Proverbs 30 verse 5, every word of God is tested. And the NIV says, every word of God is flawless. And Jesus prays to his father in John seventeen, seventeen: sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Our fear must be based on the objective truth of God's word. If we are to serve out of fear, we must serve on the basis of knowing who God is. We can't serve if we're not in the word. And this should come as no surprise to us because Jesus says pretty much the same thing in John 4, 23. An hour is coming and now is When the true worshippers will worship the Father, how? In spirit and in truth. Spirit, sincere, from the bottom of your heart, from the complete wholeness of your being and in truth, according to how God has commanded that we should fear Him and worship Him. And so true, true worship is from the spirit, from the heart, genuine, sincere, and it is based not on myth or superstition or falsehood or lie, but on pure truth. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land. You are living. And so we come to our third point. The stumbling block to service. If we are to serve God in truth, then we must put away our idols. Discard our idols. Throw them away. Forsake them. Renounce them ditch them, dump them. We need to discard, put away our idols. And I I don't know uh, about you, but at, at first glance, I didn't get the underlying message of what Joshua is saying here. I read it as, don't have any idols amongst you, which is true. But, it's only when I read the commentary on this that I was, it, it sort of came to mind that even after five decades of being eyewitnesses to the glory of God, there were still idols in Israel. After 50 years of being witnesses to the faithful, miraculous, supernatural working of God in their midst, they were still idols. They've seen the plagues, they've seen the waters part, they've seen cities crumble, they've seen a whole bunch of stuff. Miracle after miracle, and yet we find idols in the midst of the congregation. Why is this? And I think we need to look a bit further to try and understand Israel's motivation for, for possessing these idols because hopefully if we understand their motivation, we could understand our motivation and perhaps we might be able to identify idols, if any, in our midst. And this is not for me to look at you and you to look at me. This is for each one of us to look into our own hearts to see whether there are any idols that are preventing us from, prov- from providing and supplying reasonable, acceptable, honorable service to the Lord. What is an idol? Well, in its most obvious form, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's an expression of a God other than the biblical God. Uh, so it's a, it's a deity other than Yahweh. So for Israel, you had the Asherah, you had Baal, you had um, Molech, Chemosh, there were a whole bunch of gods from the Amorites and the surrounding nations that, that Israel sort of adopted into their religion. It was a syncretistic idea. Let me take a little bit of this and let me take a little bit of that and I know God has done these great and marvelous things. He's made me his, uh, his nation, so no worries. I can now try and figure out how best to accommodate and, and, and integrate um, the philosophies and religions that are around me just perhaps to keep everyone happy. That's, that's, that's idolatry. And we see it in, in, uh, in the command, which is, you shall have no other gods before me. So if, 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 and this was in Exodus 20. Moses is up the mountain, get the Ten Commandments, they break once and then given again. And, uh, and the first command is, you shall have no other gods before me. So if, if, if the command has already been given, if the people have seen Moses on the mountain and the mountain is shaking and there's fire on the mountain and no beast is supposed to go near the mountain or you will die and they've seen all this, all this, this magnificent supernatural phenomena, why are they still idols? Allow me to speculate. And I want to be clear that I am speculating because there's no way for me to be certain but I, I believe the, the reason Israel entertained idols in their lives are the same reasons why we entertain idols in our lives. They had molten and graven idols and images. We have material and mental images. The reason we entertain idols of perhaps family or children or career or finance or ambition, entertainment. We have a whole bunch of stuff that can occupy an idolatrous component in our lives. And I think the reason we do it is because we misapply the first commandment. When God says you shall have other, no other gods before me, We tend to think of it in terms of priority and not exclusivity. What do I mean by that? Let me use an illustration. Suppose I tell Brinda, babe, you know, I I love you. But, you know, I see some other women from time to time, but, you know, you're number one. You're, You're number one. There's no one above you. Is that going to work? That's a recipe for disaster. Why? Because marriage is based on exclusivity, not priority. Brinda wants to know not that she's number one, but that she's the one and only. And that's what God wants Israel to know, that he's not just number one, he's the one and only. That's how we misapply the the first commandment, because we give ourselves a free pass to to allow us to accommodate other things in our lives that we find important or that we want to give importance to, but we sort of rationalize it in our own minds to say, "Okay, this is not number one. God is number one, but these other stuff, this stuff exists." What's God's biggest complaint against Israel in the Old Testament? He accuses Israel time and time again of spiritual adultery. You have played the harlot with other gods. God wants Israel to understand that he, he is in a marriage covenant relationship with his people. We see that in the New Testament where the church is the bride of Christ. And so as, as, as this, with this picture of marriage between, between God's people and, 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 and God, the idea of faithfulness is, is prime. Faithfulness is not letting God be number one. Faithfulness is God is your one and only. There's nothing wrong with family or or kids or career or ambition or finance or any of these things. They're good things. God has given us these things, you know, to enjoy. But when they start to become uh, um, idols in our lives, when we give them positions whereby, you know, they, they start to become the ultimate purpose in our lives. You take it away and suddenly we, we fall apart. That's when we know that we've got an idol. And that's when we know that we can't serve the Lord as we ought. We're just creating stumbling blocks for ourselves that, that prevent us from serving God in a manner that is pleasing and acceptable to Him. There's another form of an idol. And it's not so obvious but it's even more insidious. I mean, you can, you can, you can say, hey, I can see uh, that this is Baal or Molech or Chemosh, and it's a different God. And so don't worship a different God. But the other form of idolatry, which is much more insidious, is something that claims to be the true God but isn't. And the case in point over here we see is the, is the golden calf. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, Exodus 32, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. Don't invent a new God. Just let, give some visual you know, expression to who God is. Come make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. And then all the people took off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took them from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. This is Yahweh. This is the God who appeared to Moses in a burning bush and said that his name was I Am. This calf that we have created is Yahweh. And that is why you have the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth, beneath or in the water, under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The first command is so that we will not worship any other God. The second command is so that we will worship God as He tells us how we should worship Him. We should not form any expression in our own minds as to who this God is. And The problem is that despite years and years and years of sitting in church, singing hymns, praying, go to Bible study, we can still harbor images of God in our own minds that are not in Alignment with his word of who he is. And I want to read to you about what J.I. Packer has to say about the commandments against idolatry. And he writes this in his book, Knowing God. It's a must read, uh, just to know God. And this is what he says, and I quote, Imagining God in our heads can be just as real a breach of the second commandment as imagining him by the work of God. Of our hands imagining God in our head can be just a breach of the second command as imagining him with our hands how often do we hear this sort of thing I like to think God of God as the great architect or mathematician or artist I don't think of God as a judge I like to think of him simply as father it needs to be said with the greatest possible emphasis that those who hold themselves free to think of God as they like are breaking the second commandment. God is not any sort of man. We were made in his image, but we must not think of him as existing in ours. To think of God in such terms is to be ignorant of God and not to know him. Unquote. It's vitally important for us to understand when we fail to serve God in truth, we are not bringing Him worship because we are worshiping an idol that is made in our own image. We're guilty of idolatry because we end up worshiping a God who we have fashioned according to our own comfort and convenience, making him a little less wrathful, making him a little more loving, making him a little less inconvenient and a little more lenient. It's a problem because we cannot render service to him that is acceptable if we harbor false ideas about who he is. It's not enough to have a system of service whereby we serve Him and serve Him in sincerity that is based on objective truth, we must not harbor any idols. And here's the scary part. You know, Joshua, it it is possible to serve an idol. It's not as if, uh, service is only for the true God and anything else is, is not service. No, no. He says, You know, it is, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living, you can make the choice to serve those gods. It's possible for us to serve idols. You know, we can, we can get so caught up in our sincerity we can get so caught up in our service that we fail to recognize whether the one whom we are serving is actually true or not. Jesus refers to this in, in Matthew 7, 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But who will enter the kingdom of heaven? He who does the will of my Father. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles and then I will declare to them I never knew you. Depart from me and this is really interesting how he describes them. You who practice lawlessness, you who engage in works that is anti-law, you who engage in works that is against my word. It's not about casting out demons and doing something in Jesus' name and performing miracles. It's doing it in a manner that is in consistency with his word. And the problem with many evangelicals in that great and and awful day is not that they worship Hindu gods or Buddhist gods or or Muslim gods, it's that they did not worship Christ as he said he ought to be worshipped. It should give us pause to understand that when we serve, we don't just serve in the way we want to serve, we serve in the way He wants us to serve. He sets the standard of what true and acceptable service is. I don't know about you, but that just gives me the shivers. I don't say that to scare us or somehow threaten us, but to make us aware of a real danger. And and so we can take preventative measures. And how do we do that? How, how do we correct ourselves if we need to? And so we come to our last point, which I'm going to say is the summary of service. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served which were beyond the river Or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you are living. And then there's that wonderful poster that we have in all our houses. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I believe that service can be summarized in two words. Obedience and worship. Why obedience? Jump down to verse 22 of Joshua 24. Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves. That you have chosen for yourselves the Lord. I mean, Joshua has been telling them, hey, you guys, are, you guys are going to stray. No, 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 we're not going to stray. We're going to worship the Lord. We're going to do the right thing. We're going, to, we're going to worship Him and make sure that we don't stray from His commands. Okay, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve Him. And they said, we are witnesses. Yep, yeah, we agree. Now, therefore, put away the, again, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst. Discard your idols and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord, our God, and we will obey. We will listen. We will do as he has commanded us. Service to the Lord is all about obedience to his word. It's that simple, really. Why worship? Listen to Romans 12, 1, and you know this. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is what? Your spiritual service of worship. Paul and Joshua are doing the same thing. They're Paul, in Romans, for 11 chapters, he's just recounting the work of God, the character of God, the nature of God, all that he has done, all that he has done, now therefore by the mercies of God present yourself. And Joshua doing the same thing, therefore, now therefore, because of 750 years of faithful, committed service from the Lord your God, serve him in sincerity, in fear and in truth. Both of them are exhorting their listeners and readers to respond to the grace of God through the spiritual act of worship. And you could read Joshua twenty four fourteen our text like this. Now therefore fear the Lord and worship Him in sincerity and truth. Put away the gods which your fathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and worship the Lord. I mean that's, that's, some, that's something we've got to really think about is when we create idols in our lives and they become the ultimate source of meaning and joy and purpose for us, we are worshipping that. We are putting that on a pedestal to such an extent that without that we can't live. And so we are displacing God from his rightful role and position as the one who gives us joy and meaning and purpose. And we replace it, we supplant it with something that is just a created thing. If it is disagreeable in your sight to worship the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will worship whether the gods your fathers worshiped, which will be on the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will worship the Lord. May the Lord guide our service to Him so that we serve Him in a way that is pleasing and honorable and acceptable to Him through our worship. Shall we pray? Our gracious God and loving Father, we want to thank you for the truth of your word, which is so powerful. Lord, it it gives us clear markers and direction and literally a roadmap for how we can serve you. Father God, we pray that you would just give us sincerity of heart and mind and will, that we would seek to not just serve you according to how we desire, but according to how you desire. And so, Lord, we pray that we would bring you service that is acceptable, holy, and reasonable in your sight. Not because we want to gain your favor, but because your grace has been poured upon us manyfold, abundantly. You have given us life. You have come to give us life, an abundant life. And we pray that the entirety of our lives and the rest of our lives might be a response in dutiful acceptable service and worship for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' most holy and precious name. Amen.